back with yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the costume designers, cinematographers, production designers, uh, composers, sound editors, sound mixers, film editors, you name it. We talked to them, and as of last week, uh, an augmented virtual reality game designer. Uh, so, we cover it all. Very, very thrilled with today's show, what we have for you today. All of, the, all of our regular listeners, you all know my love for history and how I love when film can be used to educate and to enlighten as well as entertain. Um, and we've looked at a lot of films, talked about a lot of films. This year, quite a few have come out, but the past few weeks, we've really taken a good look at history. Uh, last week, of course, with Time Detectives and the Game app, and I can't wait to see how Charlotte Mickelborg uh, and the various historical trusts that she works with, what they come up with next after uh, the Mary Rose uh, game app and virtual aug augmented virtual reality, um, because that one it is it is spectacular and it's educational and fun. Um, so I hope there's some other fun places she she will travel with time detectives in future uh, happenings and and games. And of course, we looked at Syndrome K a couple weeks ago. One of the most flabbergasting stories to come out of World War II uh, with three doctors at an Italian hospital that sits on Tiber Island across from Rome and the Jewish ghetto and how they took in as many Jews as they could as the Nazis were coming in to round them up and ship them off to, Al to Auschwitz. Um, an amazing, amazing story, an amazing documentary, and it's out there now. It came out on the 16th. I really hope so many of you check that out. It's available digitally um, everywhere. So it is such an important piece of history and an interesting piece that very few of us know about. Uh, and there really are heroes in history and in the world, and it's people like these doctors uh, during World War II at this hospital that truly show us what it, what it means to be a hero, to create a fake disease because the Nazis would be too afraid of catching it, um, and they managed to isolate these, these Jewish people and save them just an outstanding story and now today we've got two more outstanding stories about World War II um, can't wait for the midpoint of the show director producer Adrian Hall is joining us uh, to talk about her documentary into flight once more it's a wow uh, all of you aviators out there, uh, you want to check this one out. It follows the D-Day Squadron, 15 groups of airplane and history enthusiasts, in order to celebrate the 75th anniversary of D-Day uh, a couple of years ago. They located and restored vintage DC-3 planes and recreated the original D-Day flight from North America to Normandy Beach. Uh, and they made it. It is, for those of you that watch the 75th D-Day anniversary celebrations on television uh, when they occurred a couple years ago, this really takes us behind the scenes and into history as some of the original pilots. Uh, one of them, the last surviving, pa surviving Pathfinder, Lieutenant Williams, um, the Pathfinders were the first one in the air squadrons to head out and to chart the way. 
because there wasn't there weren't computers there wasn't gps or anything back in the day uh you navigated by the stars and by rudimentary maps and you and they headed out over some of the most dangerous territory over the atlantic ocean uh, and there were boats in the ground because the Nazis had U-boats, and they were trying to ping signals. Um, very intricate, in ha- and it's amazing, amazing. I mean, this was a pipeline, a pipeline for a good part of the war. This North American, uh, North America to jumping up to Newfoundland, Newfoundland, onto uh, Iceland, over to England, and then ultimately for D-Day, it was from England over to Normandy. And into flight once more, Adrian takes us behind the scenes with some of the crews that are restoring, some of the men who made the flight. Uh, it's And they actually recreated uh, the, uh, the paratroopers who were who jumped from so many of these craft onto the beaches onto the beachheads uh just incredible incredible story and uh you know having watched this for the 75th uh, anniversary of D-Day on television this now gives an entirely new uh, new perspective to me on what transpired and what all of these men, uh, you know, ded- dedicated to history, many of them with long, long generational military ties, Air Force ties. Um, it really, it's, it's spectacular. So I can't wait to talk to Adrian about this. Adrian was also one, one of the producers, an associate producer on Racing Extinction. Uh, and we had the geniuses behind that uh, on the show back in 2015. So I can't wait for Adrian. But first, a film that blew my mind. And when you watch it, it's going to blow yours. It is called Three Minutes, A Lengthening. Narrated by Helena Bonham Carter. This is, in 1938, David Kurtz, who lived in the United States, but had emigrated from Europe, from Poland, um, went traveling, went, went to Europe. And this was in 38 when politics were starting to rear their ugly head um, before World War II. And while he was there, he had a Kodak camera with Kodak Kodachrome film in it. And he shot film. Well, decades later, uh, this home movie footage was discovered in a closet uh, in his house by, I believe, his son or his, uh, and, or his, and his grandson. Um, absolutely stunning. The film was obviously denigrated. Um, it was restored. And through that three minutes, 33 seconds... And 28 one-hundredths of a second of film. What this, what three minutes of lengthening does is it analyzes that footage. And thanks to the restoration and a lot of experts being called in, from botanists to cultural experts uh, to religious experts, the film is analyzed and each with each layer of discovery we learn more about this particular community this in Poland uh, before the Holocaust it is outstanding it's it's very difficult to actually describe how you feel when you watch this because first you see the film the three minutes, there's no sound, there's no anything, there's no music, there's no narration. This is how this documentary opens, just the film. And you say, okay, it's nice, it's it's old film. But then it starts getting broken down, and you start seeing 
things like a sign over a shop. Well, can, can that be cleaned up any so you can make out the words and what kind of shop it is? And, and then people. Then suddenly faces start meaning something. Trees down the, tr- down the street. They're linden trees. Um, and a botanist identified them. It's it, with every little bit that gets analyzed, you start to learn about this community, about these people, by the hats, by the buttons, by the fabrics of the clothes. A fascinating, fascinating um, documentary. And it all started with Bianca uh, seeing a Facebook post about the three minutes. So I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to let you listen now to my exclusive interview with Bianca Stigdert, Stigter, the director and writer of Three Minutes, A Lengthening. Hello, Bianca. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I can't tell you how exciting it is to speak with you about three minutes. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was spellbound by this documentary, Bianca. Absolutely spellbound. Just so fascinating. And the way you take us through, through the voiceover narration and interviews, and we learn all about the process in expanding this degraded, Three minutes, 33 seconds, and 28 hundredths of a second video uh, film. Just fascinating. How did this story even find its way to you? I think I heard that um, you found found out about the film uh, on Facebook or social media. The original three minutes. On, 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 on Facebook, I found a post called um, Three Minutes in Poland, and I found it a very intriguing title. So I clicked on it, and it turned out to be a book written by Glenn Kurtz, Three Minutes in Poland. Um, and the book was about the film his uh, grandfather, David Kurtz, shot when he was on holiday in Europe and made the detour to his the town of his birth in uh, Poland in Nashelsk, not so far from Warsaw. And um, when Klen found his footage back, he realized the, the historic importance of it and donated it to the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. And they uh, restored it and um, made it available on their website. So in that Facebook post, this was all told. So I thought, okay, let's go over there and, <laughs> and um, watch it. <laughs> um, um, while watching it, I was immediately, you know, drawn in completely for the for a large part because the big uh, part of the footage is in color, which is, of course, very rare for that. Um, time and made it feel much more uh, contemporary and closer to you than um, the usual uh, black and white does. And you see a kind of vibrant street scene with a lot of kids trying to be um, uh, uh, in in the frame and really looking uh, right at you uh, through the through the lens and. Um, yeah, it just makes it extremely um, a vivid um, scene of a, of a people that would be um, murdered um, and uh, their culture erased not so uh, long after the footage was um, shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was really getting into it, these three minutes boom, it was over because three minutes was, of course, not that um, long. And then I already had the idea, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could make this footage last 
longer in in some way to extend it to to have more time um, in this in this uh, in this film. And but I wasn't working as a filmmaker, so I didn't do anything with this idea. Mm-hmm. A few weeks later, I was asked by the Rotterdam Film Festival if I wanted to make a video essay. And then I thought, okay, this is my chance. to <laughs> do something with this uh, material. I said, okay, we'll go and try. So I contacted Glenn um, Kurtz and he made the uh, uh, Holocaust Museum give me access to the footage. And then we worked on it for another um, five or six years. I love the way you've structured this. I love how you open this and we're just watching we're just watching this and looking at these spaces and looking at this place. So there's no sound, there's nothing cluttering our senses. And I found myself totally drawn to the faces and the joy on the faces of the children. Given the, the given the geopolitical time even in 1938 to see the joy on their faces, really, it just hits home and your heart drops because you know what event, what happens to most of them. Yeah, and that's of course what gives this, this, this image just puts them under a lot of pressure because we know what's gonna happen and they obviously do not uh, know this so your yeah. first impulse is oh my god i want to scream get out yeah run yeah and that is, you feel on the one hand so close um that you're really drawn in into this uh, world but at the other uh, at the same time you realize um this is an illusion we we cannot um enter this world it's just um uh, recording and we can't warn them because they are locked in, in in their past and we are in our present. Yeah. You've let us absorb this. And it is somewhat of a shock for anybody watching the realization of what is imminently going to happen to these people. But then you st- slowly introduce us and I think Helena has done an amazing job yes, narrating. Yes. Absolutely yes. A fantastic job. Her voice is very calming. It's very soothing. And you punctuate that when we hear from Glenn Kurtz, when we hear from other people that suddenly, the once the film became available, you know, the three-minute film, they're recognizing a grandfather, a friend, just absolutely... And for you to structure it this way and take us through the steps of breaking it down. Okay, we we see people, but what about the places? What about the little grocery store? And you bring in the Polish researchers and the trees on the street, the linden trees. And you use botanist to... I I think in this case, because the, the material is so... Um, um, rare and it's such a, um, a gift that we have it. Everything we can, every little thing that we can find out about it works as a kind of small victory against the erasure, as a kind of yes, revelation. Right down to the costume historians when they're able to look at the fabric and the style of clothing, and the whole history of the buttons and the button factory. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I I mean, in every turn, Bianca, you were drawing me in deeper and deeper and deeper. My, whole, my father's whole family came from Germany. Many, many were there during World War II. Oh, my God. So... I grew up hearing stories from my great aunts and uncles and cousins depicting both sides of what was happening. And I knew so many immigrants who would come over escaping, not just Germany, but Poland and uh, even to a large degree Russia, and they came to Philadelphia. 
and a lot of mm-hmm. them settled there. So, and I would see old photos, but never actual footage of this time and these people. So for me, this became really a personal connection to Europe. Mm-hmm. How challenging was it for you to find these experts who could come in and work with you at describing the processes that they were taking to identify the trees and then the history about uh, the postcard, Mr. Kurtz's postcard that he had sent from <laughs> Linden Cafe on Linden Street. That's also amazing, isn't it? How did you go about securing all of these experts and having them come on board and record their processes. And, uh, and, uh, of course, uh, most of the research was already then done by Glenn uh, Kurtz for his uh, book, uh, mm-hmm. Three Minutes uh, in Poland. So I could, uh, that was my biggest um, uh, source, let's say. And um, I was as well interested in, in um, you know, finding out as much as I could, albeit the most mundane, like what what, what trees are we actually uh, looking at or what, what is this flower, what we're seeing. So we did a lot of um, uh, research on that as, as well as on the, on the, uh, the, the dresses of the, of the women and so on. And we just wrote to a lot of uh, males with a lot of uh, um, botanists and costume historians and that uh, that sort of thing to try to find as much information as we um, possibly could. And of course, then you have during that process you, you uh, have a lot of uh, dead ends because um, the material is is very fragile and sometimes blurry, so a lot of experts would not uh, feel comfortable saying, oh, this this is definitely uh, a so-and-so, so a lot of things have not been um, found out yet, but um, who knows what the future will bring, maybe even if someone sees it, um, it might lead to another identification of a, of a person. This is what you and your editor do, Katharina Wortana, do so beautifully, Bianca, is in structuring this film and the edit and editing it, you develop a, a, an incredible through line. But what you also do is by repeatedly showing images, certain excerpts of the three minutes over and over with new little bits of information, we start you start to feel a connection to the people. As we're learning about the things, that's telling us more about the people. And then you start honing in on just the faces. Exactly. That's why we did, you know, at the beginning we showed the, 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 the three and a half minutes in, in its entirety. And then it's the first time, so, you you know, you, you, you see it, you don't know what what is this, who are they, who are they, etc. And then at the end we show the, the all the footage again, but because of everything you've seen and 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 heard in between, you you look quite differently at the images than when you saw them um, the first time. And so for me, sense it's also a kind of probing or or uh, experimenting with. Um, you know the difference between um, um, film and, and 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 text and that sort of thing, and what it actually means to to look at something and then really look and take your time uh, looking, and then you can find out that uh, three minutes of film can seem to contain a whole world. Mm-hmm. Something that you also do that that I truly love is as we're hearing about, okay, this person gets recognized, and then talking about this boy wearing the newsboy cap. Okay, well, they didn't connect, but the boy with the newsboy cap, he knew somebody else. And then you're taking those film images, and you're reinforcing the friendships 
or the acquaintances so that we get to understand the dynamic of the community. And I thought that was so ingenious. Really. Thank you. Just Thank you. ingenious, Bianca. And then you bring in music and sound. The sound is so important here. When we hear the two little birds, we don't see them at first until we get to see the film in a restored and saturated state. And then we see two little birds and we hear them. But with your music, you bring in very cultural music that fits so well for the period, for the Jewish religion, for the Polish culture. Was that difficult to find the right balance of music to serve as an undercurrent here? There, let's say, um, uh, two pieces of, of music that, um, um, one by a, by a cantor, a, a religious uh, song by uh, Moshe Kusevitsky, and one by a English um, a dance band, Bert Ambrose and his uh, orchestra. And um, survivors have, have said that they had heard that music um, there, not exactly maybe the songs that we hear now, but quite probably. So it was for me a tremendous thing that I could put um, the music that was probably um, heard that day to put them with the images. That was a kind of um, yeah, kind mm-hmm. of magic um, uh, moment for me. And then for for the other music that is in the in the film, I asked the uh, Dutch composer Wilco Sterke. I told him about the music, and he watched the footage, and he uh, made it quite um, modern. Uh, uh, sound for the film that for me really uh, enhances the, the the images in a, in a wonderful way. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I know that they have to pull you away from me here in a second, but before I go, I have to ask you, Bianca, this is your first yes. directorial, uh, your first yes. your first documentary. There's always a learning curve, but more than that, with a, a film like Three Minutes of Lengthening, you have given us such a gift with this film. You have given these people the gift of remembrance. What gift does this film Thank give you. you? Thank you, Debbie. Wow. <laughs> I'm a bit speechless. <laughs> You know, what 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 gift has this film given to you as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, as as um, a human? Well it's 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 a it's a great uh, feeling I you know, I, I, I set out to to um create a kind of um small memorial for um, the people that we see because very often you know the Holocaust is an abstraction and here for for a very small part of, of all the, the, the people that were um, um, murdered in the in the Holocaust here we can um, really see them as individuals and, and engage um, with them in, in hopefully a, a meaningful way. So in that sense, I think that the, the, uh, I have tried to, you know, to, to enhance the, the, the raw power of, of the recording done by, um, by David uh, uh, Kurtz and, and try to um, to extend it. Well, you have done an amazing I, job, Bianca. An, am, an amazing job. 
I hope that we'll see more works from you with Thank your you. with your voice because you have a very distinctive voice as a as a storyteller, as a documentarian. That's very obvious here. Compassion comes through. And I really want I want to see more from you, Bianca. I really do. That's very encouraging. <laughs> oh, Bianca, thank you so, so much. And hopefully we will chat again in the future. I do hope so. Oh, thank you. And you have a lovely afternoon and evening. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. again. And that was Bianca Stigter, the writer and director of Three Minutes, A Lengthening. I can't encourage you enough to see this film, what they have achieved with rest, through restoration, through an expert, expert analyst, essentially, who breaking this down. And here again, by the Kurtzes turning over that initial three minutes to the Holocaust Museum's um, restoration was possible. It was put out online as so many of any videos that they have, they're made available. And for people to see it and to recognize. And it's better than Ancestry.com, folks. Um, picture is worth a thousand words. And here it, it gives us just a little bit into the lives of these people before they lost everything they had. So it is moving. It is powerful. Uh, and again, three minutes of lengthening. It is out now, available digitally. Please do yourselves a favor and see it. And now we're still standing with World War II today. And now I'm welcoming the fabulous Adrian Hall to the show. Hi, Adrian. Hi. Welcome. Thanks for having, having me today. I am so thrilled to have you today. Uh, in the past, I, I've had one of your partners in crime on the show before a number of years uh, ago. Who was that? Louie was on the show talking about racing extinction back in 2015. Oh, amazing. That's <laughs> so great. I remember him sharing about your interview and... and you know, how storied your own career has been. Um, so thank you for everything that you do to support cinema oh for, my. for us and fellow filmmakers. Oh, my God. Well, when you when you put out documentaries and films, like what Louis puts out, like what you are, what you are putting out, be it as a producer and now a feature doctor, documentary director, um, it's easy to support you, uh, let me tell you. And boy, you really tapped into. I'm I'm a big history buff, and I love I love military themed things. And Into Flight Once More is outstanding. I watched the D, the 75th anniversary D Day coverage on television. Uh, oh, amazing! Multiple versions of it. So you know, be it CNN, be it ABC, whoever was covering. Because you can never watch something like that just once, and you want to, and you hope to get more perspective. Every uh, every time you change the channel and you look <laughs> you look for somebody else's coverage, you want a new take on it. Well, boy, Adrian, you you gave me my new take with this documentary. Let me tell you. Uh, oh, thanks so much, Debbie, for watching and and for supporting the mission and and helping spread the word. You know, these stories are. Um, disappearing with the passing of the greatest generation and That's and right. i think that was something that we really attempted to preserve and protect was um you know making sure that we could do do our best to to share these stories before all of them are gone well also I, is my line okay i feel a little bit of an echo um, can you hear me okay yeah i can hear you fine are you gonna play okay with okay great Pam's gonna double check and maybe do a little tweak if it needs it on this end but no you sound fine okay great Debbie happy to hear it yes you you're on you sound like you're on a phone but you sound fine no <laughs> you're on a phone and not in studio so uh, you know I'm real this is an interesting subject for you to tackle 
So I'm curious how you even found out about this project of these aviation enthusiasts, history enthusiasts, who came up with this idea to put together a D-Day squadron and recreate the D-Day mission from the air. Um, how did this come to you? Um, are you, yeah, ha- are you well, hanging out I, at I, airports and things? I, hanging out with, you know, uh, you know. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> I was not a part of the um, aviation community prior to this. And we, um, I run a company called Sound Off Films. We're an impact documentary studio, mostly focused on environmental and socially minded content that like racing extinction. So not, um, this was a new subject matter for me looking at World War II or military history, aviation history. Um, but we were hired to conduct some veteran interviews in a few cities that one of the planes was stopping over in on their way to Oxford, Connecticut, which was the last stop before the squadron would, you know, convene 15 Mm -hmm. airplanes and then cross the North Atlantic to get over to Normandy for the 75th anniversary. So we were just um, doing, you know, some coverage of this one plane and, and I was continually humbled by being able to speak to, to these veterans along the way. And I I remember um, meeting one of the veterans who shared a story when he was a young boy meeting a civil war veteran with his father, um, which wow. was pretty shocking to hear, but cause that just feels so distant for, for me and to imagine getting to meet and share space with someone who also shared space with a civil war veteran. And the, the parallels of that were pretty special. And, and another um, black veteran who had served in the Marines in the Pacific and shared his own stories of oppression when he was fighting on the same team and some of the people were oppressing him. So, you know, my interest was so peaked and I felt um, so privileged to be able to, again, share space with these men and women who had served our country and, we, we followed these planes, and these planes are old, so mm. they can't, you know, just like a normal airliner, go across the country. They have to stop every 100 miles, refuel, you have to do some tune-ups and, and check-ups, and um, when we got to Oxford, their last stop before heading up to Newfoundland, um, we, we were just there to film, and the existing crew happened to fall through at the last minute, so, that, so they did have a documentary team who was going to cover the whole journey. And I don't know what happened ultimately, but I remember getting a call about 36 hours before all the planes were set to take off. The director of the squadron um, of the 15 airplanes approached uh, myself and the DP I was with about joining them and making the whole trip with them. So, you know, dropping everything and being gone for a month. And um, we hadn't done any pre-interviews or didn't know anyone but the plane we'd been working with prior to you know, touching down in Oxford. And I remember looking at my DP and I was like, should we actually do this? This is a little crazy. And, you know, we both agreed to hop along um, for the trip a little reluctantly to be sure. But I remember walking away from that meeting and saying to him, like, what are we doing? Like, what movie are we going to make? And he said, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but hey, we'll figure it out. Let's not worry about that quite yet. Remember, we're going to the Arctic, so we need to get to REI. Let's go. We got to get some warm clothes. So that's like the backstory on how we got to to the trip. But truly, uh, Debbie never made a film like this quite so in reverse. We've always, you know, researched our characters and figured out what the strongest storytelling opportunities could be. But this, um, to its core, was a true verite documentary, and so many of the opportunities that we were given were just happenstance. So a lot of, and we only had one camera covering 15 airplanes for over the course of a month. So, you know, we definitely didn't get everything, but uh, what you do see is the result of a lot of luck and um, just kind of happenstance for, and, and, you know, our ability to be present and, and connect with the people who were on the journey with us. So Talk about trial by fire and shooting from the hip. Adrian. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yes, yeah, it was quite exciting to be sure. <laughs> well, now this begs the question because I have to tell you, your the way you have constructed your through line here 
is fantastic. I never would have believed that you got brought in at the last minute. Uh, because of what we see with Miss Mon- the Miss Montana plane, and we really get great insight into that plane and how much work went into building her, essentially. This is one of the really fascinating yes. things that you bring out, which had me thinking, okay, you, I was going to ask you, you know, how many years were you involved in this following <laughs> how, they're, how they're rebuilding these, these DC-3s? Uh, so I'm just blown away. Uh, yeah, well, I, thank you. That, that makes me feel very, very good about, and our whole team, you know, our editor, the writer we worked with, it was definitely a labor of love. And Miss Montana and the fact that they had that coverage, the coverage that they did have, um, was one of those lucky things that I share <laughs> with you. Um, they just happened to have that coverage of that whole team um, and the whole town of Missoula coming together around this airplane. Um we we worked with that filmmaker to license that material and then build out that story even more. But we, um, we what we didn't cover was the efforts of the 14 other planes. Mm-hmm. You know, they all had very similar stories yeah. and their own connections to World War II, family members who served, people they were honoring. And, you know, I think um, that is a disservice that that footage and, and the documentation of those efforts doesn't exist. But luckily, we were able to to showcase an element of it with Miss Montana's story. Well, and the, and the thing is, as you listen to what the interviews, what people are saying, everybody was going through uh, something similar with rebuilds and with fueling and bleeding lines and lubing and gassing and doing all this uh, before you take off on any leg of a flight uh, and talking about issues. But I think if you had tried to showcase and show similar for all 15 planes I think it might have gotten jumbled so I think that having just the one plane to focus on how you basically rebuild a DC-3 I think that works to your advantage here that's great to hear Debbie I'm glad you thought it was clean and concise in that way that was our intention and but I yeah just needed to to give a shout that you know these are 75 plus year old airplanes yeah. they, they did all have similar struggles and at the end of the day you know no spoilers maybe but the fact that um all the planes made it across safely is quite a uh, quite a telling thing to the value of these mechanics and pilots who are keeping this historic aviation alive it's pretty incredible well and what's also incredible and, I, and this really thrilled me to see this is how younger people there are aviation enthusiasts who are high school age and in their early 20s of course that's old compared to the age of a lot of the men and boys who enlisted and who were flying these planes back in 1944 I they were all I know my own grandfather with World War One he lied about his age just to be able to go fight um, he said he was wow. much older than he was and he was only 15 uh, but he was determined to fight in World War One and go to Europe, and he did. Uh, but uh, so to see, you know, some of the t- some of the teams, you know, one of the guys he was talking about, you know, I'm 25, you know, I'd be an old guy back then. He would, but <laughs> but in today's world, and we look at the greatest generation and the few that are left. And we look at, you know, the great-grandfathers, the grandfathers, the fathers, and the sons, and even the grandsons now. It's so wonderful to see the younger generations embracing this. And you really, you do a beautiful job of showing that. And we feel their enthusiasm. They're really enthusiastic about the projects. You've got the two brothers, uh, mm-hmm. you know, who out here in California, who do the airplane restoration painting. Um, I love their story oh, so much. And they- there's so many young people like that. And it was interesting. I remember um, some people in my in the interviews I was doing with them, they would say, you know, we really worry about the youngest generation. They just don't care. There's no... Um, 
they don't they're letting history fall by the wayside and you know I would just clock that and think to myself well I'm here I'm interviewing you <laughs> like some we do care you know don't don't um don't discount us because I, I think as represented in the film there are a great number of people who want to be involved in this in a young age and I hope through the film they can see themselves in some of the characters and and understand that it is possible for anybody from any walk of life to get involved in historic aviation and and understand the sacrifice of of the people who came before and and I we've really tried to keep that in mind as our core audience um, knowing that we'd have a built-in audience but how could we build this film and craft it mm -hmm. in a way that would appeal to younger people so so that was definitely at top of mind throughout the editorial process and, and what we were doing in the field as well. Well, and I also love seeing at each one of the stops, mass amounts of people would come to see these aircraft and to meet some of the original pilots, like Lieutenant Williams, like the, uh, the wonderful Mr. Rice, who is still jumping from planes at 90-plus years old um, when this was shot. The amount of public support and kids that are showing up and you capture mm -hmm. tours are being given inside the planes. And I love the segments where we actually see guy lining everybody up. They sit in the planes just like the paratroopers would have been sitting in the planes on the way over. And those kids were wrapped with attention at what they were hearing. And Yeah, that's... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, and the fact that you caught that on camera is so wonderful, and that you and you included that in this documentary, because it does mm. give hope that these stories will live on. You know, with the new that's, generations. That's. I'm so glad you noticed that, and that was so true to our experience that when we were in Europe. You know, I think it's easier as Americans who our soil was not invaded in that conflict. You know, Pearl Harbor would be the closest thing that we came to in, in that regard. And I just think that the Europeans don't forget. And the way that they showed up and brought their kids, I, I was so impressed and inspired by it. And I think that there's a lot that we, a, a big platform that we can build on from that here in the U.S. as well. Um as evidenced by some of the teachers that we featured and some of the people who are reenacting. You know, I, I think when I was growing up, it was mostly like Civil War reenacting or um, uh, things that maybe weren't as thrilling or exciting as paratroopers jumping out of airplanes. <laughs> but I think this um, reenactment, the planes are just so beautiful and really draw people in. And then the fact that there are people honoring the, this generation by jumping out of airplanes and recharting the path is, you know, very exciting. I think it bodes well for um, the longevity of, of this type of story. Well, you know, got to talk to you about the logistics here of while you're in flight, did you fly commercially? Did you fly on these planes with the crews? Did you fly on different planes uh, as you were shooting? And I see quite a bit of it. Looks like some of these planes actually had cameras mounted outside. That, that may not yes have, yes this. yeah i explain yeah. all of this to me because i'm i'm we're getting great povs from under the wings of different planes out the windows obviously somebody can have a camera shooting out the window but it was the under the wing shots that were just incredible because you see the propellers going and you get this great angle and you know the only place that it can come from is a camera underneath the wing you know, up in the air. <laughs> uh, so talk to me about how you went about this and were these crews, did they have, were they mounting their own cameras? Um, I'm really curious about this logistically. Yes. Um, well, again, going back to that very little time to prep, um, we had uh, two basic cinema cameras with us. We didn't have any gyro stabilization or multi-axis stabilization <laughs> to be handle the, the rock and the roll of some of these old airplanes. So um, a testament to our DP is his ability to hold some of those shots steady and steady for long enough for us to get a clean shot out of them because these planes do, they're a little lumpy bumpy, I would say. And, and to expand on that, um, we were in, 
the DC-3s and C-47 airplanes for a good chunk of the journey. Mm -hmm. We were flying in a King Air um, support jet from uh, Newfoundland over to Iceland. Mm -hmm. And then from Iceland throughout the rest of the way, we were passengers in the planes. And and even one of the planes, um, Betsy Biscuit Bomber crew, they're... um, a bunch of cowboys and cowgirls in that plane and they let me even fly it for, oh, for wow. a good, uh, 10, 15 minutes of just holding it straight and steady. But, um, so some pretty unforgettable things for, for me and, and my DP and all of that, just being to being able to see the ice cap or glaciers across Greenland from, um, the perspectives we did in the countryside. None of these planes can fly over, the service ceiling of them is 12,000 feet. So we were always, and, and even at that level and that far north, we were needing to stay below 8,000 feet. So you can get a pretty great view of the landscape throughout. And I think that's one of um, my favorite elements of this film is just some of the beauty and the scenics of this countryside and these seascapes um, that we're able to, to reveal. And to your point about the cameras being mounted, we worked um, to do some of that ourselves, but luckily two or three of the airplanes had really well prepared with different GoPro rigs mm-hmm. um, and captured just a tremendous amount of material that allowed us to really feature and, and use that as a consistent transition throughout the film. Um, so I have to give a shout out to Nick Camacho, who, who provided us with a lot of that material and, and did all the work to to get it to where it was. He's a great like aerial photography coordinator. Um, if anyone is ever in the market for one. <laughs> yes, Nick Camacho is the man. But is, then this t- all ties in with incredible archival footage. And I love what we get, what we hear with some of the interviews with some of the, uh, you know, some of the surviving uh, aviators as they talk about you know when they were the plane was too heavy and they were only three feet above the ocean three feet above the ocean and they had to stay at that height flying until they burned off fuel so they could slowly you know ascend and you really don't understand you know we don't really grasp the perilous nature of what they were doing you know, we think we go, we get in a plane, it takes off from the ground, and it's it's up in the air at 30,000 feet within two minutes. Uh, this is not what any of these men faced back then. So to see this beautiful footage of present day of the D-Day squadron flying over and to, to balance that with some wonderful editing of archival footage with voiceover from some of the actual pilots is it really you get this incredible incredible sense of the gravitas and also the pride to be an American listening to them that is the best of what America is and you show that so beautifully here thank you Debbie it was um it was always um, so interesting. We would be in these planes that had never been updated with the bucket seats and the lines that people would hook up to to jump out and, you know, these tiny windows. And I w- would just look around and be like, wow, like this is not so different from what the men who were serving, men and women who were serving and flying these airplanes during World War II would have been experiencing. And it gave us the idea to try to do um, match cut storytelling where, you know, it, and it just was truly inspired by our own experience because of the precision that some of these reenactors take and in, in loading up the airplanes and in, in their um, period clothing or, you know, when we would be flying across uh, the English Channel and you just see water and you see the White Cliffs of Dover and you don't see anything from modern times. You're in these airplanes and it really takes you back and puts all of it in perspective. And, we really hoped and tried to um, tell that story also through archival and the match cuts and that voiceover. And, and the story that you referenced about flying over the North Atlantic with, you know, a tremendous amount of fuel and, and being so overweighted, would they even make 
make the takeoff and, and, and be successful crossing. Some of that was also part of our process and doing an archival research Mm -hmm. path as soon as we got back just to see what existed because without some of that existing footage, that story wouldn't have been as uh, profound or compelling. So I think as a filmmaker, prioritizing that archival path um, after the journey was a huge deal for us. So we could pick out some of those sound bites that, that we could retell. And um, there's a lot more there that we weren't able to share, but glad, glad for the visuals that we found. Well, then it all needs to go into a document, uh, into a DVD and Blu-ray with lots of extras. Uh, there you go. I love that. <laughs> but um, I, I mean, it the whole thing. It's it's just so amazingly done. How long was your research process to find archival materials once the mission was over? We worked with a pretty skilled team of archival researchers that I met on projects like Louis Savoyas's and others. My my background is as a producer, so mm-hmm. luckily I had. Um, some good resources in my in my tool belt here to tap into. And we probably spent um, two weeks with four to five of us really trying to dig into different archives. And, and you know, some of it would drain on longer because a lot of places that have incredible archival are little museums without a ton of resources. or right. So really uh, varied. But I would say, you know, a, the better part of a month and researching all those things and then Oh man, the better part of six months and licensing it and getting it placed in the film <laughs> and, and all of those things. And how long was the editing process? Well, um, <laughs> all in, I would say probably the pandemic um, aside being a, a real variable that did impact us. Right. But I would say probably eight, eight to ten months of editing all in. Um, That's actually so, not bad. And probably thirty-two versions yeah, of the film was... by the time we were done. But for the magnitude of what you're, te- of the story you're telling here and what you're showing us, that's not a, that's not out of line for for editing, eight or nine months. That's small. That's small potatoes in what it could have been so much longer um, to tell. And that's a testament story. to our editor, um, Greg Georgiou, who just really dug into the subject matter and was able to really help us quickly tease out um, some of the best. We came back with over 100 hours of material, and then um, coupling that with all the things that we had to go and pick up with Miss Montana or some of the other veterans, um, he just did a tremendous job and, and loved collaborating with him on this project. Uh, well, and of course, the icing on the cake here. Nobody but this man could have done the narration, Gary Sinise. I, it, it, you couldn't have had anybody but Gary do this. He is perhaps the biggest champion of veterans uh, and the wars. Um, you know, John Stewart takes the political route. Gary Sinise is the boots on the ground supporting the men and women in arms, past and present. Wow. Did Was it difficult at all to get Gary to do narration on this one? Once he heard about it, no, (laughs) you know, it was, um, he was really excited and supportive, uh, the moment it crossed his desk. I, um, I was able to connect with his son through a composer that I work with in Los Angeles and his son, Mac, uh, Denise made the connection and is one of the producers, executive producers on the film. Um, and Gary was excited for this film to be sold told from a female perspective, was excited for a veteran story like this to be told by someone in their 30s um, and jumped right on board. And it's just been an incredible partnership for the long tail of this film. It's it's, uh, now in doing festivals and independent screenings, and it's just fabulous to have the Gary Sinise Foundation on board to support and and for us to be able to to funnel back to to what they do. given all of the tremendous efforts and, and, and lives that they've changed uh, for veterans in our country. Well, you know, one of the big things here, and, you know, and you just, you just touched on it, female perspective in your 30s. This is a perspective we wouldn't expect to see. Of course, uh, watching this documentary, 
if I didn't know that it was you directing it, I wouldn't know whether it was a male or female director because it is so objective, it is so strongly told. The voice, the directorial voice is here and it's strong. So I'm curious for you, this is your first feature documentary directorial. What was, what did you learn about yourself as a director in making this documentary, especially with shooting from the hip, running on the fly, no pun intended, um, you know, what did you learn about yourself <laughs> as a filmmaker that you can now take forward into future projects as a director or even as a producer? But, you know, you really, this is boots on the ground guerrilla filmmaking that you have that you have done. Thank you, Debbie. And, and we, I think if anything, um, it really reinforced the quality of prep. And, and how important that is. I think that our process could have been even easier had we have um, been given the project a little further in advance. So that goes without saying. Um, could the film have probably been tighter, better? Of course. But I'm so proud of what we what we ended up getting. I also think that you know my I I did try to highlight the voices of um, of maybe some representation that you don't always see mm -hmm. in films like this and we did it in a subtle way I believe in a way that yeah. um, I think really can speak to the true experience of the people involved um, but I would like to tell more female perspective stories you know I, I tracked back to, to um, a family member who I had that served in World War II she was an army corps nurse under MacArthur and, wow. in the Pacific Theater and she has she journaled every single day of her experience in the field. And, and I think about her and, and that we don't see so many female perspectives from World War II or yeah. even um, one of the, the one thing that I would have loved to include in our project, but we just ran out of uh, time, unfortunately, for our deadline. But the um, women air service pilots, mm -hmm. they, the WASPs, they're yep. called, and, and they have an incredible a tome of stories as well, where they were often the ones flying the planes over the North Atlantic or ferrying them to um, to the war effort. And you just don't hear about those things. So I um, think there's a lot more storytelling that can be done from these different perspectives. And and while we did a you know a very um, objective telling of what this experience was, I'd love to in the future dig into um, that female perspective in a different way and and see more of it i i would love to see films like that see and i think that would be and it's funny that you mentioned wasp uh because you know even touched by an angel years ago they had an episode that dealt with a woman who was a former wasp played by marion ross and incorporated some stories from world war ii and the wasps um so you know it's something, and nobody, nobody hears of these things. Nobody, you know, I had a Latin teacher who was a whack. And boy, was she proud wow. of it. And I don't think she ever got that out of her system. Truth be told, I don't think she ever got it out of her system. But I, you have such a distinctive voice, Adrian, uh, And you know how to tell story. You know how to develop a through line. And as a producer, you've learned all of those important things like budgeting and deadlines and timing. So I think you are really positioned well to jump in, you know, head first. Just dive right in to tell more of these stories, these, these hidden stories. Thank you so much. I would, it would be a great honor to be able to keep telling stories like this. We, um... I think as filmmakers, whenever you're told that you get to film with people who are nearing the end of their life or stories are at risk of slipping away or, you know, once in a lifetime experience, like I think we have crossing the North Atlantic, you know, you just feel so lucky and, and privileged. And I'm so glad we were able to capture it for other people. And anytime um, challenges like this arise i hope i continue to say yes to them um despite maybe my better judgment <laughs> but um we, we we i um look forward to you know now being closer to this community and, and seeing what else we can tell around 
military and aviation history and, and beyond. You know, there, there are so many important hidden stories, as you say, that, that we hope to, to dig into. Well, I can't wait for you to, to dig into them. I want to see them. Um, but and right now everybody can see into flight once more. It is available on all the on all the streaming platforms. Yes, it's available on all streaming platforms. Um, so would love the support and thank you, Debbie, for yours today. There's also going to be a DVD coming out. Um, and what we've seen is that military families or, or even people who have connections to World War II have just been so touched and moved by the story. And I think for younger people who who are hoping to learn more about it, it it's a, a great film to add yeah. to the collection. So thank you for giving us a, a platform today, Debbie. Uh, I just want, I want to see all of these, all of the unused stuff as extras on the DVD. That's what I want. Yeah. <laughs> I want to do so many incredible veteran interviews. Oh, good. We, we, yeah, we're we're talking about maybe even putting out a short series, um, just featuring the you know the men and women who served. But yes, that's a great a, a great note, and and those will be on the DVD for sure. Yay! I have something to look forward to. Oh, a, this has been absolutely spectacular having you on the show today, Adrian. I hope you'll come back again. When you get to work on another project, I would love to have you back and talk more. That would be so much fun, Debbie. I look forward to it. We, we have a couple of films. We have a film actually on female big wave surfers and their fight for pay equity that should be out sometime next year and, and a few others that hopefully we can surprise you with. So thank you again for all the support. I'll be on the lookout, Adrian. Thank you so much. And you have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye, Debbie. Bye-bye. And that was Adrian Hall, producer, director, into flight once more. Uh, it, it's another one. It brings history to life um, with unsung heroes. And it's really, it is fascinating to take a look back in history, uh, to see archival footage, to see these DC-3s restored, uh, and everything that went into the making that historic anniversary flight for the 75th anniversary uh, of D-Day. Well, that is all the time we have today. Two more great historical documentaries for you to check out. Three Minutes of Lengthening and Into Flight Once More. Don't forget about Syndrome K, people. Uh, and until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 